0: is Rock and Roll Grad School with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. There's nothing more that they'd like to do than take the floor and dance with you.
1: Hello, kiddies. We are going to have a good time together. Well, I think we are. Mm-hmm. We are talking with Lori Kay about her upcoming memoir, which unfortunately you weren't here for, but that I think not. we should talk to her again, perhaps when the book comes out. Sure. Con- Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Lori holds the distinction of being one of the last, or being in the last group of people to interview John Lennon the day of his uh, death. Yes, and we talk in the interview about how this has sort of affected the rest of her life. As
0: how, how could it? Right, not? as
1: you exactly. Yeah, and we had spoken a while ago, and we were thinking, do we run this around the anniversary of his passing? And I think we both thought, let's try to move it off a little bit of the date and maybe focus on what what we what came from John Lennon, the forty yes. some years prior to his death versus one terrible afternoon and evening. Correct. So, we have this great interview with Lori, and we have other stories in there too. There's stories about Mojo Nixon and. I couldn't help but ask about Bob Dylan. So there's other Shocker. things in there. I know. Um, so we have that, which is is, is, is a fascinating conversation. Um, I don't know. I texted you about this saying, I found this story that I'm fascinated by, but I don't want to tell you about it.
0: Yes, which is basically what your texts to me always are.
1: So a few online quotes that have recently been posted on a particular band's uh, Facebook page. Okay. Lose the rainbow. You're making yourself look stupid.
0: Okay.
1: Are you going woke with rainbows? Is there a straight flag? I want equal representation. Don't get me wrong. We should all be true to who we are. The last one. I thought it was a joke and had to come see for myself. Are people really having tantrums over the rainbow? Do you know what any of this is in relation to?
0: No. Is it? No.
1: It's good. So Is it Dio? It is not Dio. <laughs> Why? Are we celebrating something about the No, of... but
0: I think of Rainbow in the Dark.
1: Oh, uh, yes. No- I was just
0: hoping that people just, like, were so ridiculous and clueless, which they well, are clearly just already, but go for it.
1: So this year marks the 50th anniversary of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon.
0: Oh, you know what? I,
1: and yeah. so they announced this box set of live recordings and demos and stuff. And on their Facebook page, and I guess all of their social media, they had the little 50 logo and they put the rainbow inside the zero of the 50.
0: As they would.
1: Seeing as the cover of The Dark Side of the Moon is a prism with a rainbow.
0: thousand percent.
1: So I feel like Pink Floyd fans love to talk about like sitting around in the 70s, staring at the album cover, getting high and listening to the record. They lie. They did two of those things, perhaps. Yeah. But they did not look at the record
0: Apparently not, nor the T-shirt that's probably on a Mm. shelf in their closet.
1: Very true. Yes, and also sold
0: at Target, I think. I
1: I have zero doubt that it's at Target. Yeah. So yes, the Floyd apparently are woke because they are still using the same rainbow they have been using for fifty years.
2: Well,
0: I mean, considering you know the other recent news of uh, some of Mr. Floyd.
1: Yes, it's I,
0: an interesting dichotomy.
1: Very true. Um mm-hmm. but it's interesting because I saw a bunch of comments saying like how come they're getting so political? This is not like them. And you want to say like have you listened to any of these records? Right. Not political. <laughs> so
0: oh, I mean I am annoyed. even the most this makes no sense. Even makes the zero most sense. like commonly known Pink Floyd songs. Mhm. It's Pretty clear. Apparently not. Wow. Yeah. What, what, what brick in the wall is that's? Yep, money. Right.
1: mm mm-hmm. uh, Um. Uh, I yeah, mean, okay. I get it. Maybe you don't know what the long cut is about, even though I think they say Falkland Islands in that a bunch. But okay. Fine.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Who wow. Knows?
0: I um, don't. That really. That's pretty depressing.
1: It is. However, I have something. Um, One other little piece we can touch on briefly that's much more upbeat. Okay. Because the girl is crying in her latte.
0: I know. Crying tears of joy.
1: Exactly. Uh, May of this year, Sparks on Island Island Records. Records.
0: Home of many people I love.
1: Exactly. And I guess this explains why, I think even on their webpage, I know on Spotify, the photo of Russell and Ron sitting at a table and one of them holding their coffee and the yes. um, I'm guessing now it's a latte is flying yes. across the yes oh so
0: and what was so funny was right when you texted me mm-hmm. I had just made myself the closest version to a latte that I can make there you go so
1: do you do a little have a little picture of Russell in the froth or how do you do oh, that I
0: so should yeah, I'm you learn really how should. to do that
1: Well, you have until May. I know. Congratulations on the book. Uh, It seems like a, a massive undertaking. Was there a reason you thought, I need to write this down now?
2: Well, you know, even during my interview with John, I talked to him about writing my book because I was sure that, that my career was uh, was going to be a, a great uh, basis for a memoir. And um, this was, of course, before the tragedy happened later that day. Right. Um, but um, But I've waited over 40 years to write the book because I had to get over the guilt I was feeling. I had to... Feel like my life was in perspective and and that I wanted to to talk about my my early days, that sort of thing. So it it took me this long and it actually it took COVID to help me mm-hmm. write the book because my work in TV production came to a standstill almost instantly. And I sat down and I started writing.
1: So when you say guilt, uh, you mean around uh John Lennon's death or other things in life that sort of made you put pen to paper eventually?
2: Most likely, the main guilt in my life has been related to the John Lennon tragedy.
1: Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that for folks who, who don't know your story?
2: Absolutely. My... My problem was is that I had such an amazing time during the interview that I was sure that it was the best day of my life going forward. And I'd already done tons of interviews for RKO Radio Network and knew that there would be tons more. Um, but, but I just knew that this was the one that was going to really stand out. And unfortunately, when a few hours later... I did find out what had happened to John. I felt the guilt because I had been in contact with his killer. His contact, he he had been in contact with me, I should say, and um, tried to get me to talk to him outside the Dakota and tell him what we'd been in there talking about with John and Yoko. And I just wasn't interested in doing that at all. And I found this guy to be extremely creepy and, suspicious in a way. And the guilt that I felt after all these years is, why didn't I go to the security guard at the Dakota and say, hey, there's a guy out here. He's a pain in the ass. You really need to get rid of him.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And why didn't I look at him and see a gun sticking through his jacket pocket? Why, why didn't I? And, and I'm intellectual enough to know that I can't really blame myself for John Lennon's death. But on the other hand, I still feel guilty for the things that, looking back, I feel like I could have done, but didn't.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a form of survivor's remorse in some way. Exactly. Whether or not, like you said, you could have actually prevented anything or maybe just put it off to another awful day at some point. You know, what, what was that? Talk about the the good part of the day. Let's focus on that. Um, I mean, you got to hang out with the Beatle.
2: The the good part of the day was amazing. And I had previously interviewed George Harrison and I had previously been with the RKO team to London to interview Paul and Linda McCartney in the latest um, lineup of Wings. Um, But when John and Yoko were known to be coming out with Double Fantasy, which was going to be John's first recorded work in in five years and certainly his first work with Yoko as well in quite a while. I was so excited and when Dave Sholin said, I think we have a chance of getting to go to New York and uh, interviewing John and Yoko, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it just seemed like, wow, really, is that going to happen? That's amazing, because he was my definite idol. And another aspect of the guilt I felt was that before the interview, we got a call, uh, all of us, uh, Dave Sholin, myself, and Ron Hummel, um, our engineer producer, um, got calls asking for our birth dates and time of birth that sort of thing because yoko was working with her astrologer apparently to determine when would be the best day to schedule the interview and the fact that i answered that question and gave those details on my life and somehow december 8th 1980 was still chosen that makes me feel guilty for being who i am Um, yeah. So even though the day was amazing, the interview was amazing. I still can't help but feel that guilt on my shoulders all the time when I think about it, especially every year on the anniversary.
1: Certainly. there's a It's certainly one of the dark days of, of popular music. Um, do you kind of, I don't want to say commemorate, but do anything on that particular date to kind of honor john and his his work and, and his life
2: well generally um dave and ron and Bert keen the um, exec from the record company uh we email each other and and have a little bit of reminiscence and i usually also end up doing um interviews around that time that whether they're or not they take place on that day or they air that day and I listen to them and I I relive it. I, I relive, as I said before, what I call the best and worst day of my life.
1: Yeah. And you worked on the radio documentary that I think is played pretty regularly on the anniversary, featuring some of the footage or for some of the audio from the interview. Is that correct?
2: I wrote The show um, that RKO um, originally had planned to make a Valentine's Day special to be aired the next year, February 14th. But of course, because of the tragic event that happened that day, the interview needed to be turned into a special that would air just a few days later after, after John was killed. So I came up with the title, John Lennon, The Man, The Memory, And when I got back from New York, I wrote the special literally in a hotel room, spending two days and two nights listening to the interview again and writing it all and not sleeping. And um, Dave Sholin voiced it. Ron Hummel did the production on it. And um, it it's a tragedy for me to listen to it as well. It just takes me back
1: there. And what was the, those two days like that must have been incredibly difficult starting to wrap your mind around this tragedy that has happened, your presence on that day, and then you have to keep going back and hearing John and Yoko's voice in you know better times, as it were.
2: It was extremely hard. It was the hardest show I've ever written, and I'd written many of them for RKO, including what had been the longest um, American Beatles special uh, for RKO, it was called RKO Presents the Beatles when it was originally 14 hours. And then by the time it was, we had expanded it to 15, then 17 hours. Um, it was called The Beatles from Liverpool to Legend, uh, which was a title that I'd come up with also and liked a lot better. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's in a way, every time I hear The John Lennon and Yoko interview, I'm so excited because I think, oh, yeah, that was me. That was my life on that day. And then on the other hand, I feel guilty. I feel tragic. It's it's difficult.
1: Yeah. You know, you always put added weight and. uh, Maybe reverence to things that people say after they've passed. And I feel like there's a bunch of quotes from from John that have surfaced since that day that just have this added resonance, given, you know, I think all the Beatles, um, their outlook on love and peace and and just loving everybody. Was there anything from that interview on that day that really struck you as incredibly poignant, especially since you were... Like you said, interviewing him about love and about Valentine's Day, which is seems to be the most Beatles of all holidays.
2: Well, everything was poignant. You know, Every, just about everything he said was something that affected me just incredibly. And one of the things when he was talking about being with Yoko and and getting their relationship together, and he talked about himself being the person who was into love, love, love. And she was into peace, peace, peace. And so what an incredible couple they made. And, you know, that's how they ended up doing their bed in eventually. And Mm -hmm. that, that really reflected, uh, you know, just that whole era on me as well. Um, I loved him telling the story of how they met and how that, you know, two years later, that turned into a relationship and just, you know, even getting into their eventual breakup, um, how hard that was on him and how everybody thought that he left, you know, because he was the guy and he had just Mm -hmm. run up. But really, he made a point of saying, no, she threw me out. She told me to get out. And, you know, he'd been married when he was about 20 to his first wife, Cynthia. Mm -hmm. And then he'd married Yoko the minute they had finally gotten together and so he said he tried to be positive and thinking about it you know saying oh this is the first time I'm going to be not married and you know in my entire life practically but he said it was the worst time in his life being separated from her and that's why starting over was such a thrilling song for him to be able to write and for Yoko to be able to hear. Um, It's it was just wonderful hearing them talk about how They'd talked about going back into the studio and making music together, um you know, once they'd gotten back together um but as John said, he didn't have any songs to to come up with doing, you know, for them, so until he actually was inspired um that wasn't a possibility and then once they did they were both extremely nervous about going back into the studio together and working together this was according to Yoko Mm. and then it just turned out to be wonderful and made them so happy and loving so that was terrific to hear about
1: yeah and I've seen online your you have a signed copy of grapefruit I do did they sign it on that day when you were talking with them?
2: They did. And that that copy of Grapefruit, when I was a student at UC Berkeley, I always passed this one very infamous bookstore that had been there forever in Berkeley and looked. And right in front, they had a table of bargains. And there was a copy of Yoko Ono's Grapefruit, which I'd always been fascinated by, but had never been able to buy or, or whatever. And I thought, wow, I got to get this. And this was about four years before. So I had no idea at whatsoever that mere four years later, I'd be sitting not only with the author of the book, but the author of the introduction to the book, John and Yoko. <laughs> right. And be able to talk to them about it and get their autographs on it and John was the one who offered to autograph it Yoko I asked to autograph and John said oh do you want me to autograph it too because I wrote the introduction
1: and I guess yeah. <laughs> of course I did.
2: wow that would be amazing and they both did and John did that adorable cartoon of the two of them and It just, I look at it now and it's still so inspirational and meaningful to me. And it says so much about their relationship and love for each other. It's just, it's wonderful.
1: Since that fateful day, I feel like Yoko obviously has continued as an artist and continued making things and doing all of her fascinating uh, pieces and performances and such. In seeing how she grappled with this horribleness, did that help you at all in your journey to sort of come out the other side and sort of try as best as anyone can make peace with something that's so awful?
2: Well, that's really a hard question to answer because one of the things I really tried to do after the tragedy was to keep in touch with Yoko and continue the friendship that I was sure that that had been started and never heard back from her. And I realized that I probably reminded her of what was essentially the worst day in her life and always would. And so I never held that against her, obviously. Um, And I never had the relationship with either of them like she had with John, obviously, as well. So I think of Yoko as somebody who's just amazing in terms of her ability to continue after such a tragic incident. And granted she had her son to raise, Sean, um, and had to keep positive for him, you know, because she couldn't she couldn't jump off a cliff or go off hill with a son that, that needed to to know that he had a wonderful mother and a wonderful father previously. So I found Yoko's continuation of her work and love of life inspirational, definitely.
1: So what was the thing that sort of got you out from under that guilt? Or have you gotten out from under that guilt?
2: Talking about it and writing about it helps mm-hmm. to deal with the guilt. But no, I have not given it up. It hasn't given me up, I guess, is a better way to put mm. it. Yeah. It all sits on my shoulders.
1: And what was it like writing this book? Because obviously you go into, in great detail, sort of your life and your career that led to this, this pinnacle. Was that therapeutic for you in any way? Did it help or was it just, I need to make sure people know the story and, and see the glimpse of this person. I got a, a glimpse of as well.
2: I wanted people to know the story and I wanted them to know my story as well. So it's not like any other John Lennon book because most of them are, are written by Beatles experts who know every detail about John and the group and all of that sort of thing. And, and mine is different. Mine is my experience on that day and leading up to that day and what led up to it. Um, so it's it's definitely been therapeutic for me in helping me to remember exactly what happened and how amazing both John and Yoko made me feel that day. One thing I've always talked about is I've never felt so validated in my life as sitting next to John on the love seat in their office. And every time I would say something that he particularly agreed with, he would push down his glasses, typical John Lennon fashion, look at me over his nose and say, yes, love, or exactly, or something else that was just so amazingly validating and, and inspirational. It's like I've never gotten over that. That's still been the biggest thing in my life in terms of making me feel competent or creative and you know, saying the right thing. It was great.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like in talking with people who had some brief encounter with a celebrity in your case, I feel like celebrity is not the right word to describe who John Lennon was by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe better put people who have had these brief encounters with artists that the impact that that had on their life has these ripples and these repercussions in ways that that person probably could not ever comprehend or, or understand. But it's so interesting to hear their take on it because it's, it doesn't get smoothed out over, well, I knew this person for years or we hung out and we talked all the time. You have this one brief moment, but it is so impactful. And I think it does such a great job of allowing folks to, offer you know this snapshot of what this person put out on a daily basis in a way that's different than someone who worked with them and it's it's so interesting to hear you know your your you know afternoon with the two of them and then you also I mean let's not uh sort of put to the side all the other folks you've interviewed I mean you did mention a second ago uh the name of of George Harrison and Paul Paul McCartney. So, I mean, you've done okay with talking with folks as a as a reporter, as an interviewer. Um, I guess that's how you came across, came up with the name for the book.
2: Exactly, because not only have I interviewed a lot of rock and rollers, rock stars, um, I've also had a lot of contact, a lot of interesting, funny stories to tell that that come out in the book. You know, with everybody from. Peter Tork of the Monkees to um, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead—you uh, know, just just fun things that that I like talking about and and always always will.
1: And it seems like you haven't lost your fandom for these people, especially John.
2: Oh, no, not at all. I, the interesting thing about both John and Yoko and me is that I always felt like I had so much in common with them, even though we were all born in different decades, we all came from different countries, um, had different accents. <laughs> but still, it's for example, our our childhoods, um, mine was very difficult. And I know John had parental problems as well. And so I always felt that was something in common and and it just, even though we didn't necessarily talk about all of this in the interview, because we were told, you're not going to be talking about the Beatles. You're not going to be talking about John's past. This is all about the future going forward. Um, That came from the record company. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I didn't necessarily bring it up, I felt it as I was talking to them. I just, the two of them, I just felt, They said things to me, at one point, John was talking about um, the reason that he wanted to to be creative and and write music was that he wanted basically to tell friends and, and people about things that he loved that they might not know about. And the example he gave was, for example, the island of Bali. It's beautiful. I want to tell people about that. And what I was thinking was, Oh my God! How did he know I used to live on Bali? Because <laughs> I did. I went there to to study Balinese dance and lived there for quite a while. So it was it was that sort of thing that that there was just so many commonalities, and and a lot of those are are in my book as well.
1: That's got to be a weird, uh, I, bittersweet. Again, is not the right description of sort of having that connection, having these clearly happy memories of this time. I mean, you're your description of his reaction to questions you 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 asked that he agreed with and then everything that came later that's gotta just rage on inside you and I'm assuming that's part of the guilt as well is that you have that back and forth within you
2: absolutely and I also can't help but thinking oh my god why didn't I bring this up why didn't I bring this up you know all the all the the things, the answers that I might have wanted to get from him, that we didn't have time to, or that you know I had to let Dave Sholin ask a question too. But I couldn't <laughs> oh yeah, it.
1: fine, let so him- that sort <laughs> of thing.
2: But but in reality, it was a wonderful interview and even more so than a wonderful interview. It was a wonderful start to a friendship. I was so sure that we'd all made friends and we'd made plans before the end of the interview. We were all going to get together because John and Yoko were going to be in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. We were all going to go have dinner at Yoko's favorite Japanese restaurant in San Francisco. So this was December 8th, 1980. It was like the first meeting of, great friends that I was hoping would last a lifetime. Yeah.
1: It's it's awful. Have you heard from folks mentioned in the book?
2: Well, (laughs) uh, I, one of the things in my book is that I named all the chapters after songs that particularly described what the chapter was about. And one of the chapters is about Elvis Presley and my relationship my reaction to his passing back in 1977 and so I named the chapter Elvis is Everywhere which is a Mojo Nixon song mm-hmm. and I've been a huge fan of his forever and I did have contact for Mojo Nixon so I sent him that and he sent me back a reaction and loved my writing style and um can't wait to read the whole book because I only sent in that, that chapter in the right. first chapter, I believe. So that's what I'm hoping to hear from, you know, that that people not just enjoy reading about themselves, um, but also want to read about my life leading up to John Lennon's last interview. And the interesting thing about Mojo Nixon is um, another interview that I had done um, previous uh, was uh, Little Richard, Richard Peniman, And I loved Little Richard, and I loved talking to him. And we became quite close during the, the few hours of the interview. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a preacher now, and when you get married, I'll be happy to marry you. And I wasn't even engaged, but I said, really? And he said, yeah, just let me know. And I said, okay. So when I was ready to get married to my first husband, I contacted Little Richard and said, "I'm ready to go." And he <laughs> said, "Oh, well, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing and This was a few years later, so I didn't get upset or anything, and I didn't know what to do. And somebody else said, "Well, do you know Mojo Nixon? He likes to marry people. He's an officiant, non-religious." And I said, "Okay." So Mojo ended up marrying me and my first <laughs> husband. So it, it was kind of a very funny contact and relationship and to be able to continue it and talk about it in my book as well. was great.
1: Yeah. You also had some in- interaction with, um, with Mick Jagger. And He's, I know he, you said he put, put you on hold or put the phone down so he could listen to you on the radio. Was this like a, a test to see if you were good enough to talk with him?
2: Well, I was writing a special for RKO uh, called Top 100 of the 70s, and a lot of the musicians and and artists who'd gotten, you know, the hit songs that were going to be in it, um, I had already interviewed or RKO already had interviews for, um, but there were quite a few that didn't. And so what we needed to do was interview them quickly. And if they weren't in the country or they weren't in San Francisco, where I was working at the time, um, then they needed to be phone interviews. So uh, Dave Sholin had given me a list of people that, you know, I'd be calling or would probably be calling. And and there I was, you know, about to go on the air uh, with my newscast at one point and the um, receptionist and at the station I was working at KFRC in San Francisco says Lori Kay Mick Jagger's on the phone <laughs> and I thought oh he's of course full of crap you know <clears throat> this is, somebody's scamming me so I get on the phone it's like yeah hello and it was really Mick Jagger <laughs> and it, you know it was just outrageous I couldn't believe it and I said oh but Mick I I have a newscast in a minute it's it's a short newscast. But I, I need to go on the air. And, uh, and I said, do you want me to call you back right afterwards?" And he said, "No, I'll, I'll stay on the line, I'll hold, I'll listen." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Wow, okay. Not that that didn't make me incredibly nervous. the idea, no, why happened. would it?
1: Yeah leaving
2: <laughs> yeah, me on the air. But, um, but he did, and then afterwards. And then similarly, my interview with David Bowie was also a phone call from him that I also thought, was you know my receptionist making fun of me or or trying to scam me or something, but it was great to talk to David Bowie. But he didn't have to listen to my newscast, so mm-hmm.
1: yeah, he was yeah. like,
2: oh, yes.
1: Looking at the lists of folks you've spoken with over the years, you know, I mean, Bowie, just in the in that we've have come up in the past half hour, you know, Beatles, a Rolling Stone, David Bowie, Jerry Garcia, Little Richard. Is there anybody in the music industry where you're like, "Ah, they're the one that got away. I wish I had a chance to speak with them.
2: Um, There are plenty that I would have loved uh, to, to speak with that I still see in concert. Um, Elvis Costello, Hmm. one of my favorites, Um, Patty Smith, you know, another huge favorite i i've got tons of favorites um but for example my favorite punk band of all time the ramones i did get to interview them so mm-hmm. that i feel like i you know i accomplished that that was great and yes there are a ton of people that i wished i could have talked to but i've talked to so many that i almost don't don't think that wow my my career my life is is missing something mm-hmm. um so
1: as an interviewer, how do you put away that scrapbook? You know, Elvis Costello talks about going to write with Paul McCartney and saying, I could not bring my Beatles scrapbook to the session. I needed to be a professional and focus on that. How do you put that fandom, you know, take that off the table when you're talking with these people?
2: I don't. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not just an interviewer. I'm a fan as well unless I'm interviewing somebody that I really don't care for. Completely them. hate, right. <laughs> but um, but for the most part, that hasn't happened. Um, I'm just a rock and roll name dropper. <laughs> like I say mm-hmm. in title of my book, that's just the way it is. I just enjoy talking to people, not just about their creativity and their time in the studio, but their life outside of the studio and their um, childhood and whatever I can bring up, I do, you know, whatever they're willing to talk about.
1: You know, certain musicians are notorious for being, let's just say a little prickly. Um, Have you encountered any of these folks? And uh, how did it go? I'm thinking, you know, Bob Dylan is sort of a person who at times can be incredibly loquacious and uh, work with the person and, and have a conversation. Other times just you know, put up a stone front and not let anything in. What has your interaction been with someone like him or, you know, Neil Young, I feel like is always sort of also referenced as not being the easiest of conversationalists.
2: Um, I'm a huge Neil Young fan, always have been. And, uh, you know, since my days in junior high and his solo albums, I just, I've loved Neil Young. So I probably would not have let any rumors of his difficulty being uh, an interviewee affect me at all, mm-hmm. um, especially because um, I just there's there's a song of his that literally spelled out my life, and that is um, Sugar Mountain. Um, knowing that you can't be twenty on Sugar Mountain was what basically got me to do what I did from being a teenager to being an adult. So I don't think I would have allowed. Any attitude of his to really affect my interview at all. Now, Bob Dylan, that could be another story. I'm a huge (laughs) Bob Dylan fan and have never interviewed him. But yes, I know that he does make it difficult uh, at some point. But once again, one of my favorite concerts in my entire life was the Bob Dylan and the band comeback. Oh, Oh, wow. It was amazing. And I still, listen to the um the disc that that plays it and and i'm just in awe so i i just i guess i let people's music and their concerts um that i've seen um take the biggest part of my relationship to them in a way and if i'm lucky enough to have interviewed them that's right on top of there too
0: i like Some It's been me too long since we took the time. No one's to play my no time flies so quickly.
1: Confessions of a rock and roll name dropper, my life leading up to John Lennon's Last Interview by Lori Kay will be available this December, 2023, from Fayetteville Mafia Press. For more information, you can check out their website, faytevillemafiapress.com, and you can pre-order the book there.
0: Rock and Roll Grad School is produced by the Professional Production Company. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, because your impassioned review is just as honest as us standing backstage waiting to come back on for the encore. For more information, you can check out our website, rockandrollgradschool.com. And like everyone else, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
1: Today's show is recorded and produced by Heidi Hagquist and myself from our world headquarters, located on the second floor of the professional office building, centrally located downtown. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sauvey and Sandy Stone. Our willing executive producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. This one's for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Good night, drive safe. May all your favorite bands stay together.
0: Oh, be together all alone again,
1: like we used to in the early days.